Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. We have two great guests for you today, Steve Ketman and Amanda Renteria. Steve is a publisher of Wellstone Books, which has just released, Now What? Essays on Life After Trump. It's an amazing new collection of essays from writers and politicos, artists, liberals and conservatives alike. One of the contributors is Amanda Renteria. She's a child of immigrants who's gone on to Stanford and Harvard, senior positions in the administration and the Senate, and now she runs Code for America, an organization that mobilizes tech to improve government and the world. We talk about the book, our collective PTSD from the Trump era, what's next in government, and how to fix systems and services by just listening to people. It was a lot of fun. I encourage you to listen and then buy the book from your favorite local independent bookstore. Two quick favors before we begin. If you haven't already, please rate and review this podcast. It helps the podcast, but more importantly, it helps us bring attention to the amazing leaders who are the future of American politics. Second, make sure you subscribe. We have some really great interviews coming up, and I don't want you to miss them. As always, An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an incredible organization. Go to newdealleaders.org to learn more about who they are and how they're rebuilding this country from the ground up. Here's my conversation on a rainy day with Amanda and Steve. Enjoy. Amanda Renteria and Steve Ketman, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to be talking to you. Good to be here. Great to be here. For our listeners at home, we are uh, recording this as a as a major rainstorm uh, pummels Steve and I. So uh, you may hear some some winds and rain in the background, but we're going to get through it. We'll keep recording uh, until the lights go off. So I want to start by uh, the reason that brought us here today is Steve Ketman as the director of the Wellstone Center in the Redwoods, uh, named for the late great. Senator from Minnesota, Paul Wellstone. You put out a book called Now What? Essays on Life After Trump. First of all, let me just say it's remarkable. The book industry, usually it takes years to get a book out and to get it out within a month is absolutely amazing. But it's also amazing the group of people you've gathered to to comment on this time. So you have Christopher Buckley, Anthony Scaramucci, Al Sharpton, Dusty Baker, and Amanda Renteria. Amanda, I want to hear your uh, whether you ever thought you'd be included in a book of essays with uh, the Mooch <laughs> later on. <laughs> but Steve, tell us a little bit about this book and you know what you learned from gathering this diverse group of people to comment on this time in American history. Well, let me start with Paul Wellstone, who uh, I admire hugely. Now, we aren't actually named for Paul Wellstone. It's a little complicated because I did do a book with his son, Paul Wellstone Jr., known as Dave, and he was here before. But when we started the Wellstone Center about eight years ago or whatever, a small writer's retreat center in, in SoCal near Santa Cruz, the idea was that we really didn't want to be political. 
<laughs> you know, we were looking to inspire writers. And before Donald Trump, it, it seemed that there was a space where you could, you know, be politically engaged, but not be political in that sense. So uh, we talked about it with Dave, Dave Wellstone, and we have always taken the stance that the Wellstone in Wellstone Center in the Redwoods and Wellstone Books is a generic formulation based on the fact that I'm looking out my window here as the, as the rain whips the trees and there's stonework all over the property, which Dave and other previous owners put in. So we were going for kind of like a well spring, well stone, you know, trying to make creativity happen. But then to complete the thought over the years, watching Trump do what he did, uh, the, the urgency of trying to be more political and more involved uh, kept hitting uh, us in the face, both Sarah Ringler, my wife and I. And so we had this idea um, and we figured let, we'd just give it a, a shot. The, the initial idea was the morning after. What's it like to wake up knowing that Donald Trump has been voted out of office, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to come in? And the amazing thing was this whole book went from idea to finished book in about two months, which is shockingly fast. But a reason why that happened was, I, I think it was the first nine people that I called and got on the phone, told them about the project and asked if they would contribute, all said yes. And they all said it in a way, kind of like someone thirsty uh, who you offer a glass of water. You know, It was like something that they wanted to do, to try to, write a personal essay reflecting on, you know, four years of feeling forever bottled up with confusion and rage. Amanda writes beautifully about this in, in her essay. People like Rosanna Arquette, the actress, who was actually the first one I reached out to, you know, said yes right away. Sounds like a good idea. Christopher Buckley said yes right away. Joan Walsh. We had a pretty strong lineup together in really almost no time enabling us then to continue to reach out to different people. So that was the, the early genesis of the project, Ryan. What impressed me as I read through it was how personal so many of the essays were. We often think about politics as these big strategies and these big policy debates, but at its fundamental core, it's really uh, a personal experience. And Amanda, you talked about that really movingly in your essay. Do you want to talk about uh, what you wrote about and what you felt and are feeling about this transition in time in America? Sure. I, uh, first of all, it was just fantastic to be a part of this group, actually, when you just kind of think about this moment in time in the history of this country and to have the opportunity to share what was happening or what you were feeling at that moment. It, I think for a lot of people around America, it was very personal. Politics became very personal over the last four years for a lot of folks who all of a sudden went from bystander to really being engaged and see them, seeing themselves in different ways as the election came forward. And so what I love so much is, you know, Steve had a way of catching you at the time to say, hey, we want to hear your voice. And this is a really interesting moment. It's funny because as I look back on it, that story and what I was doing and thinking and talking to my mom and making sure everyone was going to be okay, it's almost as though once you step away, you forget how in the moment and how real this was for the people you love in your life. Steve had a way of capturing that, not only because it was the timing, but really just the gentle way of bringing you into this discussion um, that ended up being published a month later. And I think that piece of it, the speed with which it happened, allowed 
anyone or at least allowed me to feel very much in the moment when I was talking and working with Steve. And then to see it a month later, I almost can go back into it as I read it, which was, uh, for me, making sure my parents are going to be okay throughout this process. You know, so much of Trump for the Mexican-American community as the daughter of an immigrant father, this was their moment to say, you know, is this the America that I thought it was? Is this the America that was the dream for my kids? And so to see that unfold and to feel that in real time, not only to prepare my mom for, mom, it might not happen (laughs) the day of, but then to have this sense of, wow, it happened. And not only is it a validation of all the dreams that you have for America and that what we've been through for the last four years can be lifted now, but this sense of we are actually better, we are stronger, we now have actually elected, right, the VP, the first woman of color, daughter of immigrants, black woman to be vice president. And that full story and the scope of even grasping that at the time, at the moment, linking it all together, went from a very personal to quite high hopes by the end of it. And I think, um, and I think really capturing that we as a country are better for it or how that manifests in our own worlds and lives um, on a very personal level I think capture something that I think a lot of people went through this cycle, but it is interesting to read all the different, really all the different ways people had digested that in their own personal lives and in their own different angles and perspectives. Yeah, I agree. And I thought your essay, you know, when it really is about for your parents, whether the place that they've, that they live in, that they've contributed to, they raised their family in, whether that place wants them and whether they belong I mean, it doesn't get more fundamental than that, and the stakes don't get higher than that, right? And I thought, uh, I thought your essay really captured it, captured it beautifully. And Steve, I mean, tell me about reaching out and talking to people. It's it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, taking a the first draft of history and writing it in the moment. It's also a little bit of therapy, I think, for for folks. So what surprised you or engaged you about people's reaction as they contributed to the book? I was stunned at how good the writing was in general, because to me, the, the prod, it was a project, you, you know, kind of like an art installation or something. My first book, I think you know about it, is called One Day at Fenway. And I published that in 2004. And it was a whole book about the Red Sox and the Yankees, one single game. But it was, it was part baseball. I'd been a baseball writer, but it was also part social history. And the thing about it that was cool was the way people reacted to it, because I had a team of 10 reporters, including like Samantha Power, who would later be UN ambassador, a a good lineup. And they followed people around and got real stuff, you know, conversations, what people were thinking and feeling at a particular time. And what I realized was that kind of project can really hold up it's like a close-up picture, the day-in-the-life photo books. And if you if you do it the right way and you get all these glimpses from all these different people, it really has a, a quality of, of lasting. I know for that project, for One Day at Fenway, it, just by accident, Spike Lee and Peter Farrelly, two very different film directors, happened to be at the game that I wrote a book about, each of them taking his teenage son to Fenway for the first time. So both Spike and Peter were huge fans of that project. Uh, You know, I spent time with Spike watching the whole game later and going over it. Peter Farrelly, 
brought me to the set of that kind of bad movie he made about the, being a Red Sox fan, sat me in a director's chair. But the point was, he believed, and, and they, they taught me to tune in to the, the staying power of something like this. And I want to read a little bit from Janine Zakaria's great review in the San Francisco Chronicle of this book. And she writes, 38 contributors, a mix of writers, athletes, politicians, actors, lawyers, and activists, some famous, some not, weigh in on this most consequential unknown, what happens once Trump leaves office. It was riveting to read these raw, immediate reflections by everyone from the Reverend Al Sharpton to Anthony Scaramucci, who famously served only 11 days as White House communication director. This will be an important reference text for future generations trying to understand this moment in history. So the, the takeaway that I would draw is even just in the last few days, you know, all three of us on, on this are all political junkies. We read way too many articles from the New York Times and Washington Post from Washington. And what I notice and what I've learned working on book projects in the past is how often these reporters are really just guessing. I'm not saying they're bad people. Uh, I've been a political reporter myself, but the job is often to guess. So they're chasing vapors a lot of the time. So, I mean, right now, uh, we'll get to impeachment and the Senate and talk about that. I can't wait to hear what Amanda has to say about that. But the point is, you, you read column inch after column inch of newspaper stuff that really, if you stack 10 or 20 of them up together, you get a lot of vapor. It doesn't really add up to anything. But if you can focus in and get something real, like someone talking about conversations they had with their mother and father, the way Amanda does so beautifully, the way Doug Sovereign of KCBS evoked his father, who was the one who, as uh, president of Columbia Law School way back, hired RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, at, at the law school, helped her on her way to being one of the great Supreme Court justices ever. It was a fascinating take on the election through, through that lens. Or a guy like Ken Korak, the radio voice of the Oakland A's, who wrote about his father, who, you know, talked to him about FDR. I think those kinds of conversations and reminding us that politics is something that we, we can and must speak about with family members, I think that's an important part of, I don't know, finding a way forward. It's not kumbaya. It's not we're going to sit around with QAnon types and come to some understanding. It's not that, but it is a refusal to be silenced by all the rip currents out there and an insistence on trying to be honest what Joe Biden called in his inaugural address, the politics of, of your whole soul. Try to put your whole soul in it. Try to be honest. Try to stop, you know, scamming. So that's a long-winded answer to the question, but uh, that, would be, that would be how I would answer it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, Amanda, we're still very much in this new phase. We're still working through the ramifications and the pain that uh, the Trump presidency caused so many in the fear. What do you see as what's next? Uh, I should say uh, we're recording this on the 28th and everything seems to change by the day. But, you know, as of today, what do you see what's next, especially in the Senate, which seems to be really struggling with its role in addressing the insurrection, moving Biden's agenda through this conversation about what unity means? 
you know, we're these these next couple of weeks, actually next couple of months are going to be really important as relationships get reformed. The way I describe it is there is this whole sense of renewed hope. The inauguration was really inspiring and really reminded us as America um, what is possible. And there is also a great deal of work to be done. And when you actually look at that, it's work at all different levels, very different than the Great Recession, because it's not just about economics, it's about health, it's about relationships at its most basic level. It's about really starting anew with a foundation that is different than anything we've had to do in this country, at least in my lifetime, from a political standpoint, a policy standpoint, a communication standpoint. There's this moment that we have right now where uh, I think it's, I think for folks who are in D.C., for a lot of my friends, it's quite overwhelming. The executive orders that needed to happen in real time, uh, the holes in gaps in agencies that are needing to be filled as quickly as possible. So there's this overwhelming sense, but what I am also heartened by and seeing in real time is we are lucky that there are so many great experienced public service folks who are willing to step back in and say, all right, we know we have a lot of work to do. Here is what I know. Let's utilize the experience and let's move forward. Having said that, it doesn't speed up the relationships and it doesn't speed up the divisiveness or at least slow down the intensity of the divisiveness. And so you have to contend with this intense frustration that is out there from folks who this election didn't go their way with a real need to move forward. And what you're seeing in the Senate is in real time, this wrestling with how do you move forward? And at the same time, how do you send a message to friend and foe alike that if you attack our nation's capital or if you are out to assassinate political leaders, that is not acceptable in this country. So it's a precarious situation. On the other hand, at least in the Senate, you have a body that the majority of folks went through an incredibly personal attack. So it wasn't just that Mitch McConnell, you know, had a disagreement with Trump or Mike Pence had a disagreement with Trump. It really was that Trump sent out to attack them and their families and their chamber, that their, the, McConnell's very intention is to protect his members. It's supposed to be protecting politically. But on that day, on January 6th, it was literally protecting his members. I think that is strangely a uniting moment for senators. Does it mean all of them will be there? No. But did it reset relationships in a way that I think does have the potential to build a different foundation? It does. And I think we're going to see that throughout this process. It is why you're, you're beginning to see not only the conversation of impeachment, but there are people working on is there somewhere, you know, is there a combined effort on censorship? And so, you know, it's playing itself out and you're going to see people in the Senate on that timeline of compromise. It's going to take some folks a little bit longer to compromise with colleagues. It's going to take others. They'll never be there. But what you're finding is they're actually now finally having the conversation about how do we bring it together and move forward. Can't say much about that's happening in the House, but it's certainly happening in the Senate body. And I think every day is really a step towards that because some of this is just about time and relationships and understanding the sort of overall environment that we're in and the need to kind of move forward. So I am, while I think it's a long road, I still remain hopeful, but I think people have to be very real about the work that's involved here to put the pieces back together again. 
That's uh, well. That hey, that's if I can jump yeah. in. That's that's so great to hear, uh, Amanda. Because watching the last week, I've been a little demoralized. I, I do have a lot of respect for Tim King. You know, I've met him many times, and I, I think he's very level-headed and has the respect to try to lead that sort of middle way, which, you know, maybe it isn't a bad thing to have that in the mix. But at the same time, over on the House side, one of the essays in this collection, and again, the title is Now What? The Voters Have Spoken, Essays on Life After Trump. It, one of the essays is from Denver Riggleman, who was a Republican in Congress who very very much a conservative, a libertarian kind of conservative, who performed a gay wedding at one point, w- would do it again in a second, and was therefore hounded out of office, basically. He said that Biden and Harris had won the election. Trump attacked him on Twitter. He has gone through, I, I, I talk to him all the time, and he is going through so much abuse that he's had friends calling him, telling him he better be packing a weapon at all times. He went into a gun store in Virginia the other day, and he was seriously worried about his life because they all know who he is now. And they made him, by the way, take off his mask or they couldn't have service. But anyway, there's a whole lot of ugly out there, which I think it's important. You know, I think Amanda has struck a nice balance there. Well, we have a ton of work to do. We can be hopeful and we can say that it's a different day now, but navigating these waters is going to be very challenging. Another metaphor that I love is uh, I think a lot of you have probably seen J.L. Coven on social media, maybe without knowing his name. He's the guy who puts his MAGA cap on backwards and does these hilarious spot on Trump impressions. Uh, it started on Easter, I think. But anyway, he has an essay in the collection and, and the guy's very smart about politics His metaphor was that it's like it was an orange tumor that we finally removed. But now we have to go through the political chemo. And I mean, especially for people who have loved ones who went through chemo, that's a pretty heavy comparison. But I think it's apt because when you go through chemo, political chemo, all kinds of things can happen. And we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, for one, still worry very much about our democracy surviving. But I think keeping in mind that we have a lot of, of, of rough twists and turns to come and that it would be very unpredictable is, is really important. Yeah, I agree with uh, both of you and the sentiments. And it's sort of, I think it's a telling of the time, the complexity of the issues we're dealing with, the complexity of the relationships and of the feelings and how we, uh, how we adjust. Amanda, you know, you were the first Latina chief of staff to a U.S. senator. How do you think the Senate in sort of in how it operates can adjust to meet the moment and address the crises that everyday Americans are feeling and then also just become as Steve just talked about, you know, the uh, a piece of our democracy or democratic institutions with a small d that are that are holding things together. I you're probably not going to be too surprised to hear this from me. Given the role of one well, of the first Latino chief of staff, is the Senate has to have a much more expansive view than it has in the past. I think you've seen that over the course of the 2018 election cycle, where a lot of new voices really came into Washington. I think that is an indication that the Senate, the administration in general, has to have an expansive view or you're just not going to hold the trust of people in our democratic institutions. You can't keep surviving with this idea 
that uh, government is only really addressing a certain segment of the population and have trust within the broader public sector. So one of the things I, I want to double click on here is there, there is something that has changed. And having come from the Senate body, it does, positional power does matter. The fact that the White House, the Senate, and, and the House of Representatives will have Democratic leadership and that you are putting in experienced, strong cabinet secretaries is different. Now, we're not there yet. So part of what we're going through at this very moment on January 28th is that we're still in the middle of this transition. But I, I, do, I do believe in our democratic institutions in this way, which is positional power does allow a body to move. And once you get those folks in place, this will feel very different. We will see that Biden can lead with an agenda, and we already seen that. Even when he doesn't have a cabinet secretary in place, they're beginning to move things along. That part for me is probably the most hopeful in it. Along with that, the Senate has to come along where they are doing multiple things and moving things forward. Listen, I was there during the Great Recession, and I think you will hear this from anyone that was there, which is it took too long. And we did really waste some time and really wasted some moments to get good policy in that could really help the foundation of what people were feeling economically, even feeling politically at the time, had we moved things along faster and really put in place an agenda and a vision, as opposed to playing politics to try and get one vote or two votes here. I think you're going to see, and you already are seeing, a very different model of we don't have time and we have the votes. So let's put whatever vision and agenda we can as fast as possible in a way that really helps the most people possible, as opposed to some of the political games of, okay, we'll do this in, you know, in Nebraska or in Kentucky in order to get that vote. I think those days must be gone in order for people to believe in the, in the institutions again. And so how does the Senate act? With speed and with a broader view, and I think they will be successful if they can do both of those things in order to build trust back with the American people again. From uh, your your lips to the Senate chambers, uh, let's hope they move quickly. I want to switch because uh, you've, you uh, yourself have moved 3,000 miles away from that chamber to run Code for America, which is an amazing organization that brings technological innovation to government and sort of a Peace Corps for techies. Uh, I should say here in Santa Cruz County, uh, when I was with the city, we used Code for America to simplify our permitting process. Worked great, and it's now been exported to hundreds of cities uh, and counties across the across the country. And then at the county, we've used Code for America to simplify the application for CalFresh, the food the food program. And as a result, it went from a half hour and multiple phone calls to a simple iPad app that uh, people can fill out. And as a result, we've gotten thousands of more families signed up for benefits they're entitled to and help them help our economy. Uh, It's been all around great. So with that big uh, cheerlead for Code for America, can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing to make government move faster and more responsively, especially at this state and local level? Well, thank you for knowing so much about Code for America. And I can't say enough about all of our brigade networks out there who volunteer their time, as well as our just team in general, over the, especially over the last nine months, where when you're in a crisis, it is these volunteer groups that step up. Code for America jumped in during the early days of the pandemic and across the country did over 100 projects of things like people were trying to fi- figure out where do I go get food? 
Where can I get mutual aid? The website's not working. How do I get help? And we jumped in and tried to find and build that technological capability on the ground in local communities, helping community-based organizations themselves uh, make sure that they too were ready to help communities in need. I am extremely excited about what I just saw this week coming out of the Biden-Harris administration in that their commitment to racial equity and justice, their commitment to food assistance programs, their commitment to the social safety net and making sure it is robust and it works. And heck, even today, the opening up of healthcare access. What we are involved in at Code for America and where we see we can really change government to a place where it's not just sort of holding up institutions, but it is a competitive advantage for this country because it is empowering people again. We know that technology can be an enabling tool that really can start to um, build the kind of systems that work well that make sure they reach all people. And I know it might seem really simple, but going from a desktop application for low-income folks trying to get food assistance to a mobile app in multiple languages that takes five minutes is whether or not your kid goes hungry. (laughs) When you think about earned income tax credit, which are tax refunds for low-income folks, when all of a sudden you don't have to stand in line for five hours to get help from a volunteer site, but you can speak on the phone in your native language to somebody who can help you fill out those tax forms, it makes a huge difference in your life. And so that's the kind of technology we believe government needs to have. But I want to say it's not just about going, um, this is a core belief of Code for America, it's not just about going from paper to online. It's about making sure that as we do that, we broaden the scope of who government reaches and how we ensure that they have the services that they need. And in order to do that, Code for America sits with folks who are actually standing in line, sits with families who are trying to fill out those applications, and we design systems based on their input. And that's made all the difference in the kind of programs we do. And the good news is we have an Biden-Harris administration that is interested in that kind of systems work, systemic change, really. And my uber goal is that this stuff is automatic that it works for everybody, that you can sign up for health care. And when you sign up for health care, you also sign up for food stamps and you also sign up for school benefits and you also sign up for WIC and all of these other programs. And it's seamless in that way. That's the kind of government that we not only this country should have, but the kind of government that speaks to we are here for, the, for all people and we are going to make sure that you have what you need in those moments. And I'm proud to be part of an effort to really do that at a time and place where people understand the need for digital and the need to see all people. I couldn't agree more. I saw the the Code for America folks, when they came to town, they come and embed in your community and they spend more time talking to users than they do actually doing the coding. And I feel like, you know, if there's been a weakness of sort of progressives and others as we create these programs and then the department's then implement the programs, build them for their needs rather than for the end user's needs. And by flipping that around, you're right, you empower and you make it accessible and you make it work, which then not only helps people, but it breeds a faith in government to solve other problems. Are there particular areas or issues that Code for America is going to be really focused on for the next year as the Biden-Harris administration ramps up? Yep. So we know the two most effective programs for poverty alleviation is the food stamp program as well as cash assistance. And we know not only do we have a new stimulus out there, but we know that they're going to be more likely coming. 
And so we are in an effort right now to make sure that we reach all those non-filers in order not only for them to get their stimulus, but for them to get their tax refunds as part of the earned income tax credit and for them to get their child tax credits as well. So we're very much engaged in how do we reach more people, particularly communities that are hard to reach. Very excited about uh, mixed status households now being able to have EITC. We've, we were actually the, uh, we were the tech behind the disaster relief assistance for immigrants that the governor put out. And so working with community-based organizations to make sure cash assistance is reaching people and we're actually hitting everyone who needs that in a way that's never been done before is one of our key aspects. The other is schools are closed. How are we making sure that families are getting school lunches? But we did this across the nation over the last nine months is helped states all across America figure out how do they reach school kids, working with school districts and state social services to combine the data so that people can get cash to buy groceries. We are, we are doubled down on that work because we know how important it is and we're not sure when all schools will be back online. And then the third piece is automatic record clearance. You know, there are way too many folks or it takes way too long to be able to clear your record after you served a sentence. In fact, you got to get a lawyer. It's extremely expensive. We know it can be automatic. We know once you get out, it could and should be just automatic that your record is cleared so that you can go get a job, so that you can get housing, so that you can go with your kid to that program. And so we're going to continue to build on making sure we do that in a real scalable way and ideally embedding it in legislation so that these kinds of things are automatic. So when new laws pass about marijuana laws, for instance, that people's records are clear automatically, that when you go and you apply for health care, for Medicaid, that you are automatically enrolled in SNAP programs and it affects health outcomes at the end of it all. So it's exciting because this administration has already put or has already said invested in USDS, modernization, et cetera, that are all needed to make sure the tech talent um, is within government at the state and local level and the federal level to be able to do this kind of work. And I believe we can really have a step function. And you'll see it across the country when all of a sudden these programs are working. That is what gives hope to folks. And I think we have a once in a generation moment right now because the pandemic and people have started to do things in a different way, but also because we have leadership at the federal level that is really pushing to do things in a better way than what's been done before. And so... Ryan, I'd love to jump. Yeah, go, I'd go love right to ahead. just jump right in there. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, I just wanted to put this in a context of how incredibly important Amanda's work with Code for America is. Let's just take a step back and remember that the Republican method for a long time now has been disinformation, demonization, racism on the one hand, but also shutting down government and making it ridiculously ineffective so that it doesn't work for people and that people resent it. And you create this tremendous negative feeling, which can then be exploited. So the, the revolutionary act of making it easier for things to function. So in all of these ways, uh, it's so incredibly important to restore faith in government. I, uh, among the hats I've worn, I was a roving wired correspondent, you know, 20 odd years ago in, in Germany. And, and a few years ago, I, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about 
in Germany, there was a whole political party called the Pirate Party that was very popular and was surging. And their whole model was to do the kinds of things that Amanda's doing with Code for America. They were creating a platform that it's a little different in Germany, the system, but people are more involved with their party in, in terms of giving, uh, you know, saying what they think about certain things. And the, the pirates in Germany kind of flamed out. But longer term, I think we all know that technology is going to provide ways to, to solve problems for people the way Amanda's working on now, but also to get them more involved and to hear their voices. So things are less mediated, less artificial. And I think that the progress that we're going to make on that front in the four years of uh, Biden, Harris, and beyond is incredibly important. So Amanda, thank you for your, your work. I think it's so crucial. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Amanda, I wanted to ask, so this podcast is for uh, New Deal leaders who are state and local uh, elected officials who are engaged because they want to be innovative and effective. How should they or people who are involved in their communities engage with Code for America to help solve some of the, the, the issues that they're seeing? Sure, a couple of ways. One, in many areas, there's a code for. I would encourage any elected to sit down with our code for folks on the ground. Um, they're connected not only in the community, but with community-based organizations working on a lot of the issues that have surfaced on the ground. Um, so that's one just key partnership. I think the other aspect is to really spend some time thinking about systems and processes and making sure that you've got not only the skills in place, but we're happy to talk with you about what kinds of opportunities there are to make sure that we are being as efficient and effective as possible at the local and state level. And then I, I just say this, which is, and I know it's very simple, but one of the things that Code for America often says, and you, you said it just a little while ago, is spending time actually sitting in the social services office, spending time actually sitting in the front office of whatever government entity, I encourage every elected official to do that kind of thing and or use data to understand what's really going on in that front office. Because that's really where trust is built and that's really uh, determines how effective you can be as a civic leader in any capacity and at any level of government. I am hopeful that we will, uh, that there will be more of a civic tech engagement as we move on. And so I am open. You can certainly find me at Amanda Renteria on Twitter or shoot me an email, shoot me a direct message. We'd love to connect and we'd love to connect you to the network as well as the different ways that we are seeing how we can do civic tech better. We're starting to build the, our principles and practices that we have at Code for America. We have been told many times, it's great that you have these principles and practices. How do you share them more broadly? And it's one of the big things we're doing this year with a lot of states and localities is here are some of the like very simple design principles that you can put in place today in your city and in your county. And so I'm excited about partnering with a lot more local electeds to do that kind of thing. I love it. Yeah. And I would recommend to any uh, elected official, get your IT folks and sort of walk through those principles and say, how on X, Y, and Z project are we going to, are we going to use these principles to design a better system to get better outcomes? And just that, just by having that conversation, you end up with a lot better work and a lot better services for people who are, are relying on it. Steve, what's next for the Wellstone Center now that we've moved to now what? Now what's next for the Wellstone Center? 
Well, we're looking at possibly working with Eric Swalwell and his wife, Brittany Swalwell, on a book that we would publish. Um, this isn't for sure. Eric's a little bit busy right now, <laughs> as you might have heard. But we might do a book together through the Wellstone Books imprint, looking at uh, just remembering all of the things in the four years of, the, of Trump in office that were, were, were so horrible and unbelievable, but that the pace was so hectic that one outrage made you forget the, the last. So that's a project that we're looking at doing. I myself, uh, I'm also on Twitter and easy to, to find Steve Ketman. I, for baseball fans, I'm looking at doing a book on Barry Bonds, arguing that he should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I uh, wrote a book called Juiced for Jose Canseco as a, as a ghostwriter that was number one on the Times list and triggered congressional hearings. And I had reported on steroids for years. And uh, I, I, I think for a lot of people in the Bay Area, it's pretty outrageous that Barry Bonds is not going to be in the Hall of Fame. And then, Ryan, if I could, I would like to ask, uh, can I ask Amanda a political question? Is that, is that inbounds? Of course. Yeah, well, Amanda, of course, ran for governor of California in, in 2018. And uh, I'd love to see her as, as, as governor of California one day or in the Senate. Uh, I'm, uh, I think she'd be very capable in either role. But I thought uh, having run for governor, uh, it would just be interesting to get your take on how the current governor is doing, whatever you want to say. There, there's this recall against him strikes me as more of a stunt than anything. But I notice political reporters just can't help themselves, in my opinion, and they, they kind of make it seem like a bigger deal than it really is from, from my standpoint. I don't see anyone seriously challenging Gavin if he wants to run for re-election. Uh, we've got two to one Democrats to Republicans in the state. I don't see Gavin going anywhere. He's obviously got to earn his stripes by continuing to show leadership in this very, very difficult time for the state. But from where I sit, you know, he's doing okay. But I'm, I'm much more interested, you know, in your take. Yeah, I mean, I this moment for all governors across the country is tough, man. But the story's not done yet, right? And so for anyone that's out there, and I know quite a few folks who are in his administration and have deep respect for the task at hand, I think you are seeing in real time how leaders are managing this very moment. I think the recall efforts are, you know, the numbers aren't there. And so it is a little bit of, uh, I understand the efforts of people wanting to do that, and this is California politics. I've got to say it's very different than anywhere else in the country on recall efforts, um, just because of the way our system is built. And so on the one hand, it's not surprising, but it is very California-oriented. I think it is right for him and his administration to really just kind of let that roll and continue to do the work they're doing and recognize we are actually looking at a governor midway through this moment you know, some of the recent announcements of working with Blue Cross Blue Shield and Kaiser to be able to roll vaccines out. There is no governor that I would say that has a, a larger task to figure out a crisis moment vaccine rollout in the biggest economy in the country. That's a lot to deal with. And so I'd give space and time for him and his team to work this out. We'll see how it goes. I think I think the early indications when he actually did close down the state were very, very smart. I think there are missteps that have happened. Certainly the, the dinner that he had up in Northern California, not a smart move at a time that you're trying to uh, really create trust and leadership. 
But we'll see how this moves to the very end. And I am hopeful. I, I remain optimistic, and I want him to be incredibly successful because it means fewer lives are lost, and it means that California is back on track as it should be. Good question, Steve, uh, and good answer, Amanda. Uh, you know, the, I think this is the we're in many ways the toughest period. Patience is thin. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, but the light is still a ways off, uh, which in some ways makes it harder on a day-to-day basis. I think the California, from where I sit at the county level, the California needs to engage essentially as a nation, the nation state it is, and scale up as fast as it can on vaccine distribution and as well as testing and tracing, and then really, you know, provide a vision for people that that is that is realistic that people can then base their education of their kids, their small businesses, their they're paying their rent or not being able to pay their rent. Like people need need some level of vision and certainty for what's going to come. And if you give people that and then and then deliver faster and better than what you said you were going to do, um, it should work out. But that's just my prediction for for this day and every day, every every week, everything changes. I want to thank you both for taking the time to join me and for and for this book. I think now what really captures a moment in time in our country that uh, in the rush of news and newness and everything else tends to be overwhelmed, but it's important that we don't forget how we felt in that in the moment and over the last four years and how we're going to sort of move forward from that space to hopefully something a lot better. And I think both of you have contributed a lot to that conversation, and I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. Yes, thanks very much, Ryan. Enjoyed it. Thank you, and uh, both of you stay dry today as, as best you can. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> Will do. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.